Thank you for listening to our Emmanuel Baptist Church podcast sermon series by Pastor Sean Cole. Emmanuel exists to display God's glory, declare God's gospel, and to disciple for God's great commission. If you have any questions about this message or would like more information about our church, you can visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. Bibles too, thank you, to the book of Exodus chapter 11. I'm still battling a little bit of a, whatever you call this. Exodus chapter 11 this morning. And as you're turning there, I have a confession to make. It's a deep, dark confession. I don't like giving blood. I don't like to have my blood drawn. There's been times where just the sight of blood, I've almost fainted. I I really don't like it. When Zachary, our youngest son, has to go to Children's Hospital, there's times where they have to take his blood. And I remember one time, it seemed like about a half an hour for them to find his vein. And they're poking around, and I'm about ready to faint. And they just find the vein. And so it was, you know, a, a trying situation. And usually they have to take four or five vials of blood when they, when they, when they do Zachary's. And so, so some of you in the medical field, you're not bothered by blood, But the average person, I think, when you talk about blood, they get a little queasy, get a little uneasy. Maybe it makes you faint or makes you feel nauseated. You know, blood's kind of yucky. It's disturbing. It's not clean. It's not tidy. I don't think blood's supposed to be. The sight of blood makes us very uncomfortable. Why all this talk about blood this morning? Why can't you start your sermon with a little bit more sophistication, Pastor Sean? Christianity is all about blood. Our entire faith rests upon the shed blood of Jesus Christ for sinners. P.T. Forsyth said this many years ago. Christ is to us just what his cross is. All that Christ was in heaven or on earth was put into what he did there. On this, the whole church rests. If you move faith from that center of the cross, you've driven the nail in the church's coffin. The church is then doomed to death, and it's only a matter of time until she expires. I wonder if the evangelical church is embarrassed by the blood. Of Jesus. I wonder if we as a church at large in America have moved on to bigger and better things than the blood of Christ on the cross. How to have a stress free life, how to reach your full potential, how to manage money, how to have moral kids in this crazy world, how to have a happening marriage. Now, there's nothing wrong with those things inherently, but there's nothing actually Christian about those things if you stop and think about it. Most atheists, most moralists want a better life, a better marriage, better kids. Everybody wants things to be better. And I wonder if the church has shifted the message from, here's the cross of Christ and your need for salvation to, hey, just try Jesus, he'll make your life better. Have you heard that message before? Just try Jesus. He'll make your life better. Try him on for size if you like him. He'll improve your life. Over Christmas, I was listening to a podcast 
This is a person that I have interaction with. He's been on my podcast. I've been on his. We debate back and forth. He had one of the pastors of the largest churches in America, a church from the deep south. If I'd give him his name, you'd know who he was, was on there. And this pastor basically said this about the message of Christianity. He said, most people don't care what's true, but what works. And if that's the culture we live in, we can't fight it. We need to make it as easy as we can for people to try Jesus out and see that he works. This pastor is representative of many churches across our land that they don't outright deny the cross of Christ, repentance, the blood, but they don't emphasize it. They don't stress it. The message is, how does Jesus improve your life? You want a good life? Try Jesus. What is the message of the gospel? Could the message of the gospel be so offensive that it says to all people everywhere, you are guilty in your sins before a holy God and your only hope is in the shed blood of Jesus Christ for forgiveness of sins. You know, we often give lip service to the blood of Christ. We give lip service to the cross of Christ. But I wonder how deep we dove into the depths of the reality of the cross. Listen to what Charles Spurgeon said in his day. This is back in the late 1800s. Spurgeon said, If there should ever come a wretched day when all of our pulpits shall be full of modern thought, and that old doctrine of a substitutionary atonement shall be exploded... Will then there remain no word of comfort for the guilty or hope for the despairing? Shall we speak with bated breath because some affected person shudders at the very sound of the word blood? Or some cultured individual rebels at the old-fashioned thought of sacrifice? Nay, verily, we will sooner have our tongue cut out than to cease to speak of the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Spurgeon said, I would rather have my tongue cut out than to stop to speak about the blood. Hebrews 9.22 says this. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. So as we approach Exodus this morning, everything centers on blood. If you don't like blood, you're not going to like where we're going this morning. Because it's all over the place. God has unleashed nine plagues on Egypt. Last week we saw the ninth plague was darkness for three days over the land, a darkness that could be felt. And now we come to the tenth and final plague in Exodus. The plague is the killing of the firstborn son, but it's also the Passover. So let's read together Exodus chapter 11, verses 1 through 10. The Lord said to Moses, yet one plague more I will bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. Afterward, he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will drive you away completely. Speak now in the hearing of the people and then ask every man of his neighbor and every woman of her neighbor for silver and gold jewelry. And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt in the sight of Pharaoh's servants and in the sight of the people. So Moses says, Thus says the Lord, About midnight I will go out into the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die, 
From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who's behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle. There shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been, nor will ever be again. But not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, either man or beast, that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. And all these your servants shall come to me and bow down to me, saying, Get out, you and all the people who follow you. And after that I will go out. And he went out from Pharaoh in hot anger. And the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you, that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh. And the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the people of Israel go out of his land. We're going to look at two passages of Scripture this morning, chapter 11 and the first part of chapter 12. But here's the main idea from chapter 11. The Lord has the sovereign right to execute divine justice. The Lord has the sovereign right to execute divine justice. Now, chapter 11 is all an announcement of judgment. It's an announcement of the Passover. God says in verse 1, one more plague. The word plague in Hebrew means to strike or to blow. One more blow on Egypt and then they'll be knocked out for good. The announcement of the killing of the firstborn son. Now, you've probably read this story many, many times, but if you're new to the story, this may sound a little shocking. God, that sounds extreme. I mean, we can handle some of these other plagues where it was hail and it was locusts, but but killing a firstborn son, that sounds mean, that sounds cruel, that sounds extreme. Why do you have to be so harsh? And this is one of the reasons why a lot of people have trouble with the Bible. They wonder, how could a God execute justice against people? It sounds barbaric. It sounds mean. And you may be tempted to think that, well, yeah, the Egyptians, they were pagan idolaters, but they weren't that bad, were they? They weren't really that bad. They weren't bad enough to have their firstborn son killed. Why is God being so heartless to these Egyptians? Sounds extreme, God. Let me just ask you a question. How long had Egypt been in bondage to Pharaoh and these taskmasters? 400 years. 400 years of slavery. You go back to chapter 3, verse 7. Chapter 3, verse 7. The Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters, and I know their suffering. They've been in affliction for 400 years. Chapter 4, verses 22 and 23. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son, and I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. God's already given him the warning. So it's been 400 years. Let me ask you another question. After witnessing firsthand nine amazing plagues, Did the Egyptians repent? Did they trust in the one true God? What should have the Egyptians done after plague nine, even after plague two? Repent of their idolatry. 
Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 1.9, For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living God. That's what Egypt should have done. They should have turned to God from their idols to serve the living God. So 400 years of oppression, no repentance after nine plagues. Let me ask you another question. What was the Lord's repeated theme time and time again in these plagues? Why is God doing what he's doing? I want to take you on a journey that we've been over the past few months. Go back to chapter 7. And I want to show you over and over again why God's doing what he's doing. We don't want to lose the forest for the trees. Why is God doing this? Chapter 7, verse 17. Chapter 7, verse 17. Thus says the Lord, by this you shall know that I am the Lord. You shall know that I am the Lord. Okay, turn to chapter 8, verse 10. Chapter 8, verse 10. He said, tomorrow, Moses said, be it as you say, so that you may know that there is no one like the Lord our God. Okay, chapter 8, verse 22. But on that day I will set apart the land of Goshen where my people shall dwell so that no swarms of flies shall be there that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. Chapter 9, verse 14. For this time I will send all the plagues on you yourself and on your servants and your people so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. For now I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence and you would have been cut off from the earth. But for this purpose I have raised you up to show you my power so that, you, so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. Okay, go to chapter 9, verse 29. Moses said to him, as soon as I have gone out of the city, I will stretch out my hand to the Lord. The thunder will cease and there will be no more hail so that you may know that the earth is the Lord's. But as for you and your servants, I know that you do not yet fear the Lord your God. In chapter 10, at the end of verse 2, I've dealt harshly with the Egyptians and what signs have I done among you that you may know that I am the Lord. Do you see the pattern? What's God doing? (coughs) God is saying over and over again, the reason I'm doing this is so that you will emphatically know that I'm the one true Lord. I'm the one true God of Israel. That you will know that I'm Lord of all. In chapter 11, verse 7, he, he says it again. But not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, either man or beast, that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. So here's the question. Have the Egyptians come to truly know that the Lord is the one true God? Do they know this? Not in their heads. Have they come to know Yahweh, the Lord, alone? Have they repented of their idolatry and turned and trust in the Lord? Can they say, like Psalm 72, 18 through 19, can the Egyptians say, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who alone does wondrous things. Blessed be his glorious name forever and ever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. Before we think that Egypt's not guilty or God's being an extreme. Let's just think about Egypt for a moment. 400 years of keeping Israel in bondage. Plague after plague and no repentance. 
Warning after warning and no repentance. God says, I'm doing this so you will know that I am the one true Lord. And they haven't come to know him. And so because God is the one true Lord, and God is holy, and God is righteous, and God has warned them, and God has seen the affliction of his people, God says, listen, I have every right to inflict justice against sin because I am the Lord. You need to have a healthy dose of this because not only will our culture not affirm this, but there are many within the church that have a hard time accepting the fact that God can actually judge sin. God has a right to execute divine justice on those who don't repent. That's chapter 11, the announcement of judgment. One more blow, Israel. I'm going to show Egypt one more blow, one more plague. And let's go into chapter 12. Chapter 12 is a long chapter. We're just going to look at the first 13 verses. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb... Then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat. You shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then you shall take some of the blood and put it on the two torposts and the lintels of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on fire with the unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted, its head with its legs and its innermost parts. You shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it, with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I shall pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. If chapter 11 was God has the divine right to execute Justice, here's the point of this passage. The Lord has the sovereign right to provide the only way to escape his judgment. The sovereign Lord has the right to provide the only way to escape that judgment. Now, something should have immediately caught your attention when you jumped into chapter 12. What has been the pattern of the first nine plagues? Israel has been in Goshen, they've been protected. The plagues did not befall them. They were protected sovereignly under God's wing. They didn't experience the darkness, the flies, the gnats, the boils, all those things. And up to this point, God has graciously protected them from judgment. Now, what would be the temptation of Israel when it comes to the tenth plague? The killing of the firstborn son. What would they be tempted to think? 
we're not as bad as the Egyptians. We're not guilty of any sin at all. They deserve God's wrath, but not us. We're Israel. We're immune from any type of plague or punishment. That's for Egypt, not for us, because we're better than they are. Look very carefully at verse 13. What does God say? The blood shall be assigned for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. God gave them instructions through Moses that if they did not follow them, that same plague would befall them. This is the first time the plague will directly affect the Israelites. Your firstborn sons will be killed just like their firstborns will be killed. Yet I'm giving you instructions. Here's the reality. Israel was just as spiritually guilty as Egypt. Just because you're God's chosen person doesn't mean you're any less guilty than those who aren't. Romans 3, 10 through 12, as it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they become worthless. No one does good. No, not even one. Nobody's good. Nobody is immune to God's justice because all of us have sinned. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind, and we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Guilty, guilty, guilty. Jew and Gentile, both guilty under God's wrath because of sin. There's only one difference in this passage of Scripture between Israel and Egypt. The Lord provided instructions to Israel on how to avoid his wrath. He did not give those instructions to the Egyptians. He says it there in chapter 11, verse 7. But no dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, either man or beast, that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. God's making a distinction. God's giving something to Israel that he's not giving to Egypt. God's giving an atonement to Israel, instructions to Israel that he's not giving to Egypt. And here's what I find fascinating about the instructions on the Passover. Because this cuts against what you hear in today's culture. Notice that God's very specific. God says there's one and only one way to deal with this. There's only one way to avoid wrath. God does not say to the Israelites, Hey, Israelites, try to figure it out yourselves. How to avoid your firstborn son being killed. And good luck with that. Just go and try to go figure it out. God does not say to them, You really don't need to go kill a lamb because blood atonement's not that big of a deal. Sin's not that big of a deal. We don't need to worry about killing you know, lambs and blood and all this kind of stuff. It's sin's not that big of a deal to me. God didn't say that. God didn't tell Israel, hey, Israel, just try to be good. Try to be spiritual. Do your best to be nice to others. Find inner enlightenment. Find inner peace. Just be a good person, Israel, and it'll all go away. God did not say to them, hey, it's up to you. However you want to do it, it's fine with you. You figure it out. Whatever works, works. All paths lead to God. You do it the way you want to do it. We'll figure it out in the end. Now, we laugh at those things, don't we? But many people approach their sin 
and future judgment the same way. I'll figure it out on my own. I'll do my own thing. Does there really need to be an atonement, a sacrifice? Can I just be a good person? Is God really going to punish sin? No, the Lord's very specific. Israelites, there's one and only one way to avoid wrath. You go take a lamb, a spotless lamb, and you kill that lamb at twilight, and you put the blood on the doorpost and lintels of your house. And on that night, when the destroyer comes and sees the blood, you will be safe wrath. That's the one and only way I'm sovereignly prescribing for you to do that. If they did not do that, if they did not trust in the Lord's instructions, if not by faith, they appropriated what God provided, they too would experience the death of their firstborn sons. They had to follow the instructions. So in verses 1 through 6, you see the qualifications for the lamb. The lamb has to be a pure, spotless lamb. And then in verses 7 through 13, you see what you're supposed to do with the blood of the lamb. You're supposed to kill it and smear the blood on the lentils and doorposts of your house. And, and so verse 12 tells us why God's doing this. Look at verse 12. I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. On all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. Once and for all, I've been executing judgment in these nine plagues. I'm coming to the final plague, and the reason I'm doing this is because I am the Lord. They will know I am the Lord. That's the issue all along. But for the Israelites, the blood would be a sign. Notice what it says here in verse 13. The blood shall be a sign for you. It's going to be a sign. It's got to be applied. I've got to see the blood. If, if there's no blood, wrath, death, <coughs> your firstborn dies. If I see blood, Passover, you're safe. They had to act in faith to spread the blood on the doorposts. Now, obviously, the Passover is a precursor to Christ. What does this passage teach us about Jesus? John the Baptist saw Jesus coming down the road in John 1.29. The next day, he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, there's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, what do you mean there's the Lamb of God? It looks like a man in sandals walking down the street. No, you don't understand. He's the true Lamb of God to take away sin once and for all. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, 7, For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Jesus is the Passover lamb. So in this passage of Scripture, you see the qualifications of the lamb, and you see what the blood of the lamb is to, is to be accomplishing. So what do, we, what do we see in Jesus? What are the qualifications of Jesus as the lamb? Jesus had to be born of a virgin, fully God, fully man, pure, spotless, holy, sinless perfection. Hebrews 4.15. We do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, the one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Jesus never once sinned. This was read earlier. 1 Peter 1, 18-19. Knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but what were you bought with? The precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish 
our spot. 1 Peter 2.22, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. So Jesus, the ultimate Passover lamb, had to be spotless, pure, sinless. Now, Now, why is this important? Can an animal atone for your sin? No, because you're a human, and you've personally sinned against God, an animal does not represent you. An animal can't stand in your place because you're not an animal and an animal's not you. Can an angel atone for your sin? No, angels never sinned. Besides that, you're not an angel. You've sinned against God as a human, only an angel's not human, so an angel can't represent you. Can some other human die for you in your place? No. Now we're getting closer. They're a human, but they're a sinful human. Only a human can die in the place of a human, but that human has to also be God. Don't ask me to explain it. Just believe it. Jesus is fully God and fully man. The sinless son of God was the only one that could die in our place. So that's the qualifications of the lamb. Pure, spotless, sinless. Jesus meets the qualifications. Now, what did they do with the shedding of the blood? In the Old Testament, they had to put the blood on the doorpost and lintels of the house so that when the angel of death passed over and saw the blood, they would be saved from wrath. What did Jesus' blood accomplish? Well, Jesus, when he died on the cross, took our sins away so that we would never have to pay for them. This is called expiation, the taking away of our sins as far as the east is from the west. Colossians 2 13 through 14. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us some of our trespasses. What does your Bible say? All. Stop and just praise the Lord. He's he's forgiven you of all your sins. If there's one sin out there he didn't pay for, we're all in trouble. He paid for all of our sins. How did he do it? He canceled the record of death that stood against us with its legal demands. He set it aside, nailing it to the cross. When Jesus was nailed to the cross, he forgave us all of our sins, past, present, and future. Praise the Lord. Hebrews 9, 12 through 14. Jesus, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. (coughs) <coughs> Excuse me. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our consciences from dead works to serve the living God. He offered himself without blemish to God so that all of our sins could be taken away. He also took the full punishment of our sin in his body in our place. This is called propitiation. It's the idea of God pouring down his justice, his his wrath, his righteous anger on Jesus in our place so that we would not have to experience that. Romans 5, 9. Since therefore we've now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. In the Old Testament, how were they saved from the wrath of God? By the blood. How are you saved from the wrath of God? By the blood. Ephesians 1, 7, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. 
1 John 1, 7, if we walk in the light as he's in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. His blood cleanses us from all sin. In him we have redemption in his blood. He forgives us of all of our sins. And the writer of Hebrews makes an interesting commentary about Moses. Hebrews eleven twenty eight. by faith, he, that's Moses, kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch him. So here's the ultimate question for you today. How do you personally escape the destroyer on that final day of judgment when God passes over your life? You do what the Israelites did. By faith, you trust in what God alone provided. You don't come up with your own way. You don't try to be spiritual, try to be good, try to avoid these things. You, you, you do what the one and only way God has provided. What's the one and only way God has provided? The blood of Jesus in your place as the sacrificial lamb. Here's what's so sad about the Passover. After plague, after plague, after warning, after warning, after seeing God's power firsthand, the Egyptians did not repent. They did not fall on their knees and say, now I know that he's the one true God. I've heard about him, but now I know him. Don't be like the Egyptians. Don't be so close to Jesus that you know about him, but you don't know him. Big difference between knowing about Jesus and knowing Jesus. You can know a lot about Jesus and never actually know him personally. And on that final day of judgment, what will God see when he passes over your life? Will he see your life covered in the blood of Jesus? Will it be a sign to the Lord when he passes over that you're covered in the blood of Jesus, just like the, the doorpost and the, and the frames were covered with the blood? And when God sees your life covered in the blood of Jesus, he passes over you and you are safe. You aren't experiencing that justice. Or when God looks at your life on that final day and he doesn't see blood because you've not trusted in the only sacrifice, what's the only thing God can do because he's holy? Execute justice. Romans 3, 24 and 25. We're justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Salvation is a free gift of grace. You can't earn it. You don't deserve it. Christ died in your place on the cross to forgive you of your sins. But what does that passage say? It has to be received by faith. You must place all of your trust and in your faith and hope in Jesus alone as the only way. Some of the greatest hymns of the faith teach us about the blood of Christ. There's a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. 
And sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. Dear dying lamb, thy precious blood shall never lose its power till all the ransomed church of God be saved to sin no more. Have you been to Jesus for the cleansing power? Are you washed in the blood of the lamb? Are you fully trusting in his grace this hour? Are you washed in the blood of the lamb? Are you washed in the blood, in the soul-cleansing blood of the lamb? Are your garments spotless? Are they white as snow? Are you washed in the blood of the lamb? Would you be free from the burden of sin? There's power in the blood. Power in the blood. Would you over evil a victory win? There's wonderful power in the blood. There's power Power, wonder-working power in the precious blood of the Lamb. Alas, and did my Savior bleed, and did my Sovereign die? Would he devote that sacred head for such a worm as I? Was it for sins that I had done that he groaned upon the tree? Amazing pity, grace unknown, and love beyond degree. Would you be able to sing these great hymns of the faith from the depths of your heart? Because you've trusted in the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Let me ask you to bow your heads this morning. Here this morning and you have never trusted in Jesus Christ to be your Savior. Maybe you know about him, but you've never come to that point where you know him personally. Today's the day of salvation. You've heard the message. You know the truth. Don't harden your heart, but trust in the only way that God has provided to save you from the wrath to come. And that is through Jesus Christ alone the Lamb of God that takes away our sins. Would you trust in Jesus and his precious blood? Father, thank you so much for your grace, your mercy, your power. Today we stand in awe that you are our great God who sent Jesus as the Lamb. Takes away our sin. Shed his blood for us. We are so thankful, Jesus, for your cross. The power of the cross. The old rugged cross. What can wash away our sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make us whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Let us walk away from this place today, Lord, with the encouragement of having our sins being forgiven. The joy of the Lord as our strength and that, Lord, as we face the day, as we face what comes ahead, as we, as we leave this place, as we've been gathered together as your people, but we leave and we go out into the world, will we live in the victory of the blood of Christ. And not be ashamed of that, but be thankful and rest in the power of the blood. We ask this in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen.